I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my Thoughts on Money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. I'm here with my good friends and colleagues, Mr. Blaine Carver and James Andrews. Excited to join you. Thanks for having us. Perfect. Last week, Blaine was the guest author, and it would be only appropriate if this week, James was the guest author. Uh, I love this article, and I will let you tee it up, James, for a little bit of background. The first time I heard about mental models was in a speech from Warren Buffett's partner, who is Charlie Munger. Charlie Munger. The one. Took me a minute to think about it. He talked about this lattice work, um, yeah. this idea that we can draw from different uh, studies and parts of life to understand finance. Um, and even I'm a big fan of Michael Mobison, even though I don't, don't know how to pronounce his last name, but uh, he attends, I think it's the Santa Fe Institute, where they bring together people from all different walks of life. Uh, and he writes about how he understands so much more about finance now as he understands how the economy of bees work and uh, mm-hmm. the creation of honey and, and things like that and kind of uh, these overlaps. So uh, I have found the discussion to be enlightening, and I would love to have you tee us up on mental models. Thank you very much, Mr. Trevor. Appreciate joining the podcast and sharing. Mental models are a bit of a passion of mine. So I was turned on to this about 10 years ago by an old boss I had. Uh, he pointed me to a blog called Farnham Street, written by a gentleman named Shane Parrish, who, like you, loved learning about mental models and wanted to understand how great thinkers of the world think. So he went and consolidated almost 100 of these things. Um, So I I read them regularly. It's a passion of mine. The reason I like it so much is because it applies to our life as advisors. Wait, I have a question for you, though. Yes. Why is it called Farnham Street? I have no idea. (laughs) I've Googled it, and I'm trying to find out. Is that not the street that Berkshire Hathaway's on? Look at you. There you go. I might be wrong. I might be wrong. Google no, it look afterwards. It up. I'm, I'm, full, sure. I'm full of useful, useful, useless knowledge. <laughs> look at you. Bring out the knowledge. Um, but I like it because as advisors, our job is really to help clients, right? And what's interesting is when, when you meet a client, everyone is unique. So they're unique in their career, in their location, in their concerns about money and what they want to do. And so how I work with a family in the Midwest is very different than how I work with an attorney up in Los Angeles. They have different mindsets. And so to be a good advisor, I really wanted to have a lattice work of ways to think about problems that are applicable to many client situations. It helps me do my job better. So if you follow mental models, this one is called the map is not the territory. Uh, which is another way of saying that the framework that you have in place, right, the the model or the directions that you want to follow may not always reflect the terrain they represent. So here's an easy example to kind of kick this off is in high school, when you're trying to work out and exercise, get strong, there's a certain routine you're supposed to do for your sports. So I was a hockey player, and so I would do exercise routines that worked for hockey. I am in my 30s. I have kids. I sit in an office all day. And if I were to try to do those exercises now, it would be painful, if not miserable. Because Do you you still play hockey? I do sometimes. I had to take a break for a little bit, but I I do dad leagues, which is like 12 a.m. So that's that's on occasion. But uh, Lucas Klaus, who's recording us right now, big hockey fan. We talked about it. Wondering when he's going to invite you to go play. I know. I want to go to a game, too. We talk about the Ducks. What's this young man? Is it Connor Bedard? Is that, I, I'm not good at hockey. Bedard, yeah. Bedard? Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is he the next Wayne Gretzky? I, 
Yeah, Lucas has given us a maybe. 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 Mid-level Gretzky, he says. Yeah, I think it's too soon to tell. All right, so what you were doing in high school would cause anguish and injury now. Go on. Exactly, right? The map I followed then no longer matches the reality that I have now. Mm -hmm. And it works in fitness. It works in finance. It works in a lot of areas of life. And it's an understanding that... The territory has changed, maybe. The assumptions that used to apply back then maybe don't apply now. And so understanding how to think about a client's situation and say, okay, what are the what are you trying to solve for? What's what's the map? Where are you trying to go? And is that map accounting for the assumptions that are in your life? And how does that work? Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. One of the things I've desired to do on Thoughts on Money, which it's a high goal. Who knows if I'll achieve it, but I really wanted to teach people how to think yeah. because a lot of people come to thoughts on money for answers, which is good, but I really like to show, Hey, how did I get to that answer? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's not the right answer for you, mm-hmm. but if you know the, the mechanics, the math, the, the thinking, and you can build on that lattice work, right? It might help you to apply what wisdom or prudence looks like in, in this arena mm-hmm. a, into maybe a different arena. Yeah. Yeah, well, I have to jump at the opportunity to talk about uh, your opening paragraph, James, on sleep training. <laughs> we we all have multiple kids here. Um, I have a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a three-and-a-half-month-old. And so sleep training is something that my wife and I are talking about this very moment. So it's very timely. And uh, to apply your mental model to this this situation, you know, we, d- we looked at the uh, the sleep training books, and we went through that model for our first uh yeah. first child just like you did james and it worked it worked wonderfully second child not to rub it in but very easy she just sleep trained on herself oh my by herself and so we didn't actually have to utilize any of those tools but every every child's different and so in the next couple of weeks we're going to be embarking on this uh sleep training adventure and we'll see uh, I, I don't plan on rereading the textbook i feel like to use your point, Trevor, some of that has been downloaded into my, my thought process. Yeah. Um, but every every kid's different. And so we'll see if it works or if it's not. The map is not the territory. Yeah, it's helpful because they give you a framework. And so you're like, okay, the goal is to sleep train my child and have a bit more freedom at night. Mm-hmm. And so I know what the goal is. And I need a way to start, right? I need a starting point. And so the books and the research, it helps help you think about what you want to accomplish. But then you have to map it to reality. Did the assumptions in the book match the personality of the child? And mm-hmm. if there's a discrepancy, can you abort the book and change the tune? Or are you so fixated on following the program that you lose sight of the bigger goal? I think sometimes, too, when you're dealing with a difficult life obstacle, even if it's training a child how to sleep, sometimes it can feel really lonely. And sometimes your your mind can take you to a place like, no one's ever experienced this before. So there's comfort yeah. when you talk to a friend or when you read a book and you're like, huh, I'm not the only one to approach this hurdle, right? I know a lot of prospective clients, when they reach out to us, they ask questions like, what does an average person looking to potentially use you guys look like? Or what type of questions do they ask? Or what does an average portfolio look like? Or what do average results look like? Because they're trying to anchor towards if you took a, a sample size of 10 or 20 or 30 people, what was their experience like? 
Yeah, it's it's helpful because you need you need some reference points by which to kind of orient yourself. So Blaine, you talked last week about your trip from mm-hmm. Washington down to California. You needed a map. You needed some starting point to get there so that you knew you of the direction you wanted to go. But along the way, there's decision points. So you have to say, okay, is the direction I'm going it's still the direction I want to continue to go? And is it taking me in a faster or slower path? And so when I think about mental models, and, and really this one in particular, there's a, few, there's a few things I want to always be mindful of. And it's a way to kind of reassess how you think. And so we'll, I'll give some examples in a minute about stock trading that I did back in high school that turned out well and turned out not so well. But one of the ones I think about often when working with client portfolios is, is the expectations I have about the decisions I've made matching up to reality. So just an easy example is you want a client to be in a generally diversified portfolio. It's going to track the market. Well, as time progresses and the market does what it does, is the portfolio performing as you would expect? If it's so, then maybe the map is matching up to reality. That's mm-hmm. great. Some cases, the portfolio goes off to the left field and you have to understand, okay, the framework I used for this is no longer mapping up to what I thought. Therefore, there's something different in the assumptions I had and I need to understand what that is. And so taking time to do a sanity check say, okay, did my assumptions match up with what I'm seeing as like the play on the field or is there something different going on? Look at last year, 2022. So historically, as investors, as asset allocators, we thought about stocks and bonds being negatively correlated. At least if you're talking about treasury bonds, you know, long-term are slightly negatively correlated to stocks. So if you do a 60-40 portfolio, you'd expect maybe your stocks to be up, bonds might be down, or vice versa. All of a sudden, 2022 comes, we start with interest rates at basically zero. They rise to you know now 5.5% for the Fed funds rate. That put huge pressure on bonds in 2022, along with stock prices. So you had both stocks and bonds dropping. So this map, this model of, hey, bonds and stocks are negatively correlated, that didn't necessarily translate to 2022 because the territory was new, right? It wasn't the same as the map. And informing somebody sometimes that that's an atypical situation can be extremely helpful to say, hey, we're going to build a mental model based on probabilities Mm -hmm. and assumptions, but we're going to build it on the rule, not the exception. Note that when that exception does surface, we're going to have to come back to this conversation and say, this is an abnormal event, Mm -hmm. right? So I don't know the number, but something, again, give me grace for for our listeners, but something like over the last 50 or 100 years, there might only be two or three occurrences where stocks and bonds were actually negative in the same year. But there's also the question of because of the environment, are things different, Mm -hmm. right? very scary question to ask in finance that things are different this time is usually the sentence before a lot of uh you get yourself in a lot of trouble yeah right so but it's a fair question to ask you will be listening as a listener to this on on saturday most likely but uh we're recording this today on wednesday and i wrote dc today on wednesday and one of the things i put in there was this disparity between the top seven companies Mm -hmm. and the other 493 companies. And why is that important to understand? Because if you own the S&P 500 and you're excited about the results you're experiencing, that's great. You just want to understand where those results are coming from. And the, the, the chart or the reference that I put in there was 
that, hey, the results are coming from the top seven companies, not mm-hmm. from the 500. Mm-hmm. And if you look deeper with those top seven companies, it's actually coming from multiple expansion. Mm-hmm. So multiple expansion is usually scary because multiples, PE ratios, are mean reverting. So if you're getting a Can little... You explain what that means? Yeah, I just mean that uh, if you look over time, PE ratios meaning how many dollars in stock price, the P... Do I have to pay for every dollar of E earnings that a company generates, right? It's a it's a ratio that you can use to get an understanding generally with the stock market if in general it is expensive, fairly priced, or or cheap. Now we know that those valuation metrics from studying are not great timing mechanisms, mm-hmm. but we also know that they are a, a really good foreshadowing to what future expected returns are. So again, when you're seeing multiple expansion, meaning stock prices rising, but not in relationship to growing earnings, it typically means that you're stealing or borrowing future returns and enjoying them to today. And what does that mean for future self? They're probably going to get that mean reversion or that, that, that averages are happening. So again, a little bit too nerdy, possibly. A little bit too wordy, sure. But it's something to be thoughtful about to say, Hey, when we use mental models, when we make assumptions, it's always good to pull on the thread and ask, why? Mm -hmm. Why are returns like this this year? Where do those returns come from? And getting a little bit deeper than the surface level. Yeah, it's helpful because it it encourages you to ask why and understand the reason behind the madness that is sometimes the stock market. So an example I give in the paper, I'll share a bit briefly here, was I started stock trading in high school. I opened my first E-Trade account, and I was looking for my first acquisition. I had a few thousand bucks, and I was ready to, to hit it big. And so I, I researched opportunities, and I found some jewelry business in China that I just thought was a perfect opportunity. So I, I went in and did a ton of work. I built out, as you said, a lattice work of mental models or of a framework of how I evaluated the opportunity as a retail business in China. And the work I put in was a success. The trade went up, I made money, I was very happy. And so in my high school exuberance, I decided to do the same thing again, make $2,000 into five or whatever the number was. There's only one thing better than winning once. It's winning twice. Winning twice. (laughs) Sure is. And so I took the model that I created, this bulletproof way of printing money, as I saw it, and I applied it to the next stock pick which happened to be an industrial company in the United States, right? I was comparing a model of retail in China to industrial in the US, and uh, it's probably no surprise here that it didn't work out, right? And so it's because I didn't understand what I was getting into and having a a good understanding of of what I was trying to accomplish. I was trying to take something that worked in one scenario, where I was taking a map of Seattle, and Mm -hmm. I was trying to use that to apply and help me navigate Sacramento. In hindsight, are you happy that it didn't work out, that second stock pick? I, I learn a lot more, unfortunately, from my mistakes that sticks with me. Me too. Uh, I'm, I'm a competitive guy at heart, and so when I lose, it, I, I realize I learned those, those lessons a lot harder than when I win, because then I just think I'm a genius, and that's rarely the case. And so, as it's true in most finances, you learn from the mistakes more. Yeah, and we tend to over-attribute wins to ourselves and oh, yeah. uh, under-attribute losses uh, to ourselves. We, we think it's... Uh, we're unlucky. Yeah, there. I think it was Michael Mosen who said this too. And again, I'll have to learn how to pronounce his last name. But uh, that that line between skill and luck is super blurry, yeah. uh, and it's hard to kind of figure out where it comes from. What I also like about what you wrote about 
is I, I see people take a lot of mental shortcuts, which is hmm. understandable, right? I think we call them heuristics, this idea hmm. that you have to make, uh, I don't even know the numbers. I've, I've, I've read about this before, but it's something like you make like 6,000 decisions a day or yeah. something yeah. unreal. So these shortcuts are helpful, right? But I find people anchoring to little uh, finance quips or things like that. Like, you know what they say, James, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And I'm like, wait, time out. That doesn't mean that you should have 10 different custodians, right? Mm-hmm. Because having you know your money at this custodian, that custodian, that one, it actually makes it really difficult to organize. Yeah. It makes it really difficult for titling the right beneficiaries. And it actually can cause a lot more Concentration. Uh, yeah, well, con- concentration risk, all that, but it can cause a lot more harm than good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then you go backwards and you ask that why question. Why was there a quote that you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket? Let's think about it. Well, if all of your eggs were literally in one basket and you tipped over, then all of your eggs would break, right? So the concept there, the idea is that you want to have investments uh, in different places that behave differently, not not literal location, mm-hmm. right? Not literal custodian, but you want to have different investments like stocks, bonds, real estate, cash, because as you have diversification in security and assets, it actually allows you the the, the mathematical benefit of diversification. Having your money in just a bunch of different places uh, doesn't scratch that same itch. Yeah, finance is really interesting because there are so many models and shortcuts, rules of thumb or heuristics, whatever you want to call it, to help people make financial decisions. Sometimes those are created by salesmen to help you put, to push you into certain products. Um, another one I hear very often is we just start with a plain vanilla portfolio, which as everyone knows is a 60-40, 60% bonds, 40% or 60% stocks, excuse me, 40% bonds. And it's a helpful starting point when you're thinking about how to invest and if it's a 401k, what does that look like? So it's not a bad starting point, but the next layer is, okay, well, are you in your 30s and you have plenty of runway? Are you later in life and you need more cash on hand for a home remodel? Right? Understand, well, well, what are we trying to accomplish? Because that, that simplified generalistic benchmark is a helpful starting point. But if you stop there, you're missing out on the true meaning of what you're trying to accomplish. And you may do more harm than good stopping at that point. Yeah. I think that's the, the danger of some articles in prominent financial journals is anybody can read one of those from whether it's the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or whatever it is, it might have a short article that catches your attention with the headline might be something about Roth conversions or saving, you know, a certain amount of income in your 401k. But those are meant to be general. And they certainly might not apply to your situation. So that's where it becomes dangerous when you're anchoring to these general rules of thumb that might not apply to your territory. It makes me really uncomfortable. And, uh, it's not even frustration. It's, it's actually just uncomfortable when it, I'm, I'm meeting somebody new and they're coming to me for advice and they're, they're trying to rush me towards a recommendation. And I'm like, oh, I'm really uncomfortable because I, I don't yeah. have any context. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It, again, I don't have the perfect analogy, but if somebody came up to me and said, what outfit should I wear tomorrow? I, I don't know. I, like, I, what's the event? Yeah. What's the weather? I, yeah. The context matters a lot for me. Mm-hmm. And I am very, I don't know the right word, like self-conscious or whatnot, of, of I really want to give good advice. Yeah. And for me to give good advice, it has to be grounded in understanding all the facts and the details. But I also understand from somebody sitting across from me, 
they can feel frustrated, right? Like, I, I really just want you to give me the answer to this riddle. I don't totally want you to financially undress me or, or ask more questions. <laughs> and I'm like, it, it puts me in a little bit of a, a tension point because I'm like, I can't do my job in the way that you want me to mm-hmm. because you want me to give you like a, a fortune cookie recommendation and we know how fortune cookies work right like one out of ten times they'll probably hit right <laughs> but it's not a great way to make life decisions yeah it's it's a common one too because people are just trying to get the answers to solve a problem and that's very valid right folks are out there trying to solve the problems in their life and financially that's a big part of it The hard part with us is that we're advisors. And so we have an innate desire to give advice. And unless we know how the advice is going to be applied to the individual, I'm usually more concerned that I'm going to do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. So if I have a client that says, hey, I have this, these funds, what should I do with X, Y, and Z fund? And I I want to give the advice. I want to give feedback, but I, I find myself uncomfortable because I may inadvertently do more harm than good by not knowing the whole context. And mm-hmm. so you want to be careful. It's hard to message too, because sometimes folks feel like you're being shady or you're beating around the bush or you're not giving a straight answer when the truth is, I just, I just don't want to do more harm than good. And context to your point really, really matters. For your exact point of like how it will be interpreted, I find myself a lot lately saying, I'm going to give you a really direct answer at first, hmm. but I want you to wrap that in foil of it depends mm-hmm. so that we then can say we can build on that, but I'm not ready to stamp it as a recommendation yet. I can speak in general terms because I want to satiate your curiosity and get as, as quick as I can to accommodate you to kind of give you what a, what a final answer could look like. But we want to make sure that that puzzle piece is appropriate for the real you're trying to solve. Yeah. Speaks to our desire as advice givers of building financial plans for all our clients, right? We want to know the whole context. We want to know the whole financial situation so that we can give the appropriate advice, not just advice that might uh, correlate to their investment uh, management decision. Because a decision on investment management also touches estate planning and tax planning and their overall, you know, financial and retirement planning. Um, but James, I know you wrote an article about uh, you know building that financial plan and, and how it needs to evolve over time. Let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah. So when I was thinking about this, uh, I tried to put myself in the shoes of the listener and say, okay, I get it. Like, not all models map out to reality. I need to ask questions and understand why. Okay, I get that from a surface level perspective, but but what does this actually mean? So if I were to sit down, look at my finances, look at my financial plan. What is it I should be doing to make sure that the assumptions are mapping reality, that I'm actually applying this model? And so in the article, I just give three general examples of how I think about that for myself and how I think about that with clients. And so one of those is on the financial plan itself. So the financial plan is kind of like the the main map that advisors use to get an understanding of their client's situations. We put in all the assets and the liabilities and the income. It gives us a good snapshot of what reality looks like today. Some advisors take that snapshot and run with it. Um, and while that can be helpful as a starting point, what can happen is the clients take as Bible for the financial plan, what they should take as a, maybe just a nudge in the right direction. So an example, When I work with clients and they're close to retirement, they're trying to understand, hey, can I retire? Can I be financially free? We run the financial plan and it says, okay, you can retire. What you have in here is enough. You're good to go. 
But then we'll say, okay, well, how do we break this? Like, what are the limitations of the financial plan? What are the guardrails at which we need to be aware of? An example is like, say you have a GPS and it includes most of the cliffs, but not all the cliffs. At some point, you won't be happy when you drive off the cliff that wasn't accounted for. So with a financial plan, I want to understand what are the common cliffs that can derail this that we should account for? So one of those is retirement spending. Hey, what if you spent an extra 10 or 15% in retirement? Is your plan still okay? Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. You say, okay, so you can retire next year, but you have to live on a very tight budget. Is that a trade-off you want to make? Maybe yes, maybe no. And so understanding the guardrails in the financial plan, and I list out more of them in the article so that you're not taking as Bible what is just a starting point. One of the ways I think in which the financial planning industry has evolved in a very good way over the last, say, 15, 20 years is we've gone from a static financial planning model to a dynamic financial planning model. What I mean by that is 15, 20 years ago, I believe what a lot of advisors did is they, it was early on in the financial planning industry's uh, evolution and advisors would print out this big binder, three ring binder with 60 pages that would show cash flow and retirement contributions and spending and taxes, all that. That's a good starting point. However, if you're just handing a client a 60 page three ring binder and saying, good luck, go for it. They're not going to do well. And so our, industry, I hope, I know we do this in our, in our day to day, but it should be a dynamic thing where you're working with clients every meeting or at least every year to update the financial plan because markets change, uh, economics change, financial planning situations change, retirement dates change. And so, uh, the financial plan needs to change with client circumstances. Yeah, I agree. Trevor, did you want to add, I was going to talk about investments, but Maybe. <clears throat> oh, no, I was just going to piggyback on that. I've written a few articles where I say it's not financial plan. Mm-hmm. It's financial planning. Yep. <laughs> uh, so a lot of times when newer people I'm working with are, are saying, like, when are we going to do the financial plan? I'm like, I just don't want you to think that this is one event where one thing gets bound. Uh, it's it's a series of events, right? Mm-hmm. And it's planning. And, and by the time it's kind of like I, I, I referenced the Golden Gate Bridge I don't know if this is true, but I've heard it before, that they paint the Golden Gate Bridge from one side to the other, and when they finish, they start painting the other side oh, again wow. uh, because <laughs> uh, for corrosion yeah. and all that stuff. So it, it's something that is, is ongoing. And I look at financial planning that way because as you get down the checklist and things like that, you find by the time you get to where you thought the finish line was, you go back to the starting yeah. line and mm-hmm. go look where pivots and edits and, and things like that. Uh, need to change. So getting that concept of financial planning is so important. And that's why sometimes it's hard to put in words for advisors, the value they can provide, because I don't know how to quantify the fact that, uh, Blaine, if you're my client, I had to nudge you six times before we even had the first estate planning meeting, Mm -hmm. right? So those six nudges have value, right? But uh, it's not easy to, one, tell you that's what I'm going to do or to be able to quantify that because it's unique to the person. But, you know, you talked about Daniel Daniel Kahneman in in the past on on the Mm -hmm, podcast and uh, he wrote that book called Nudge, right? And this idea that uh, sometimes we can create environments where we can give these little nudges that help to create benefits and those benefits can seem to compound for the benefit to the client. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. One other area that I thought about 
in, in terms of how, how to map out what works for you in the assumptions is in the world of investment. So I understand not every listener is a client. Some of them are doing it themselves, um, either through stock picking or being more passive and following indexes. And so a couple examples just to bring that home as well in terms of the map isn't the territory. So we mentioned this earlier, but I'll talk about it again just to bring the point home, which is the ETFs, right? Those exchange funds mapping the S&P. If you're the type of investor that likes to track indexes, understanding that what has worked so well over the past nine or 10 months might not work over the next 10 months. Mm -hmm. And so the map may have changed, the reality may have changed, and your investment philosophy might need to be revisited. I'm not saying sell Mm -hmm. or make changes, but I'm saying it it might be worth a revisit of Mm -hmm. what brought you here isn't going to get you to the next leg of life. And then um, I think about stock pickers. Um, The ones that I've talked with, generally speaking, they allude to the fact that they have a way that they manage their funds. They have an approach, they have research that they read, and they have a way to methodically go through stocks. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, Rarely is it long-term success. But from my own experience and from talking with clients, encouraging clients to understand, look, are you... Are you investing in a certain way because it works for that sector? Are you investing that way because it maps to the new opportunity? But taking a second to not copy and paste the model, mm-hmm. but rather understand, okay, are, are these two the same or are they different? Um, can have a huge impact, right? I lost yeah. thousands of dollars by not taking that step of just understanding, should I copy and paste this or or is the field changed? Yeah. Well, what's one thing that's different 12 years ago compared to now? Interest rates. Yeah. Right. So the, the model has changed and uh, it's different uh, investment assumptions are going to have to have to be used because of the fact that interest rates were essentially zero since 2009, 2022. They, they came up and they're they're sticking high right now. I always try to, like, take all roads back to Warren Buffett. Right. Because he's a, an easy place where a lot of people agree like, oh, yeah, he belongs on the Mount Rushmore of finance and investing. And if you want to talk about the quality, the sp- the the specific quality that allows him to be on that Mount Rushmore is persistence, right? And, and I'm saying persistence of results, <laughs> right? It's not that his strategy or his approach worked in some singular environment. Mm-hmm. He, I don't know how long it is now, but like <laughs> 60, 70 years, that persistence is, is valuable. And in sports, we see the same thing. We see a lot of athletes that can make the Hall of Fame, but their careers aren't as robust. Mm-hmm. We might see somebody like LeBron James going into his 19th season or At something least, like yeah. that. Uh, and you get this idea of persistence, right? So that's important for people to understand when they're building those models and they fall in love with this particular mutual fund and they look at results that they think are, you know, six years or or something of that. And then you start to ask questions, what is the attribution of those results? Mm -hmm. Um, And you start to parse out, how do you define the difference between, you know, luck and skill? Um, Is it the same manager today that was two years ago and things like that questions that people might not be obvious to think about, but we also know when somebody's allocating their 401k, it's, uh, like a, a cupcake sitting there. You just can't not do it to itemize the options by returns, past, right? Past returns. Past returns. <laughs> so, uh, there's a little disclaimer on there that says, uh, past returns are not indicative of future results, but yeah. that cupcake is sitting there. Yeah. You just, uh, have to, have to do it. So uh, again, we'll, we'll go around the, uh, the horn and do a little bit of a kind of a final thoughts, 
But what we wanted to deliver to clients today is on this podcast, we would love to teach you how to think. And part of your thinking are these natural shortcuts that you create or beliefs about how the world works. And you picked them up along the way somewhere. And some of them are good. And some of them are not good. Some of them are dated. Some of them need to be modified. And uh, it's nice to have an advisor that you can dialogue with these things about to understand, am I thinking about this the right way? From a faith perspective, I do that all the time. I have a few trusted people I go to, and I say, hey, I read the Bible this way, and I think it applies to my situation like this. Am I looking at this the right way? And I have some trusted people around me beat me up, not literally, maybe sometimes, but beat up those ideas, thoughts, and make sure that these big life decisions I'm making, I'm coming with the right mental models. I think about premarital counseling, okay? So I got married nine and a half years ago, went through premarital counseling, and it was pretty intense. We we read two full books, um, and then I wrote probably 10 papers, anywhere between one and five pages. Oh did you and, uh, come out with an A plus? I don't know. Uh, there's no, no grades, unfortunately. I, I wish married, I would have gotten so. an A plus. We got married, and the thing is, the guy who was doing the premarital counseling was marrying us as well, so I didn't really have a, an option. But uh, the, the reason I say this is because it was really good training for my marriage. I'm, I'm thankful I read the books. I'm thankful I did the exercises. It prepared me very well. Prepared Kendall very well for marriage. But you get into marriage, and things are different. And you know, to two souls become one and our our personalities are are very different. And so you take what you learn from the models, but you have to constantly be asking yourself, why am I doing it this way? Or what's different in my new territory as compared to the models that I just learned from? Yeah, I think that's... James is going to give you his Mike Tyson quote. Please. just (laughs) right before it right now. You want to deliver it? Uh, No, go ahead. (laughs) Everything is fine until you get punched in the face. Everybody's a plan until they get punched in the face. In the face. So when I was thinking about this, I, I do at least once a year self-reflection for me. And for this for this mental model, map isn't the territory. There's three things I think about. And so I wanted to share this with you. The first one is, is this, is the outcome that's unfolding reflective of what I'm trying to accomplish. So an example is the workout routine. Is the workout routine you're doing producing the results you want to see? My wife is doing workouts. She's doing more weightlifting and she's not happy with the results. She's got a stiff back. She's got, you know, things going on with her neck. It's not producing the results she wants. Maybe it's time to switch up the routine to produce the results that you're looking for. The second one is that are the results in line with your values? And so I give an example in the paper I'll share briefly, which is about charitable giving. So for very many years, I gave charitably in a certain way recently as i evaluate this what i want to contribute to what i want to support is changing not wholesale but a little bit and so i want to give differently not better or worse but differently because my values have shifted i'm more focused on the community in front of me in the city that i live in and so i want to support that differently than how i did i want my wealth to match my values and the third one that really comes up with advisors and financial planning is are there cliffs on the horizon that can take me off course? So I can't plan for everything, 
but I can plan for some things. I can look at my family history, see if there's a medical history I should be aware of. I can look at my job and understand, hey, do I have a concentration risk, right? If I just have one employer and do a job, that's concentration risk. So are there cliffs that could cause me to be off track that I should plan for? And so just understanding those three things uh, helps you evaluate from health, from spiritual, from financial, if you're on track to do what you want to do or if there's a mismatch. Thank you. Thank you for being a guest writer today on Thoughts on Money. We're going to ask our listeners if you have any questions for Blaine or Trevor or James, you can reach us at Tom, T-O-M, at thebonsagroup.com. We'll ask that you rate the podcast. Obviously, five stars are preferred. You can leave comments there, questions, and uh, we really appreciate you listening to this podcast. We really appreciate you reading the weekly blog, and we will be back next week with more of our Thoughts, Thoughts on, on Money. money. Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.